One of my favorite spots in the city is the World War II Memorial, uh, which is often, I think, overlooked. People rushing to the Lincoln Memorial kind of overlook this area with a bunch of fountains in the middle of the National Mall. And one of the things that I love about the World War II Memorial is you can actually put your feet in the water and you can splash around. Uh, And if you did that at the reflecting pools, you would probably uh, get tackled pretty quickly. Um, but, But at the World War II Memorial, it's actually encouraged. And that's because on VE Day, when World War II ended, all of the American soldiers all over Europe ran into the fountains and they started dancing because they were just overjoyed that the forces of evil had been conquered. They were overjoyed that the forces of good had won the day. They were overjoyed that the war and all of the casualties that came with it were ended. They were overjoyed that they were going home. They were overjoyed. And so they danced in the fountain. And we're waiting for that kind of joy today as we look at the news from Ukraine, aren't we? We're we're desperately waiting for the day that the forces of evil will be smacked down, for the forces of good to win, for this horrible war to be over, and so that all the soldiers and civilians and refugees can go home. And that conflict in Ukraine is just a taste of the ongoing battle between good and evil that we see come to a climax here in Revelation chapters 19 and 20, when the forces of evil will be finally, fully, completely, ultimately stopped. The forces of good will win the day. The war will be over, and we will go home. That's the good news that we're going to find today in Revelation chapter 19 and 20. The main idea that I want you to take home today is that Jesus is king forever, and Christians will live forever. Jesus is king forever, and Christians will live forever. We'll see that as we walk through uh, this very uh, incredible passage, and this passage is made up of six different visions. At six different times in this passage, maybe you saw this as, as we were reading, At six different times in this passage, John, the author of Revelation, says, Then I saw, and he talks about what he saw. That happened six times, 1911, 1917, 1919, 20 verse 1, 24, and 2011. And so we have six different pictures, six different visions of this final judgment and the events leading up to it. Six different pictures of the final judgment. And so we're going to have six main points today from each of these six sections describing these events leading up to the final judgment and the final judgment itself. So the first of those visions, an incredible king. Before John describes the final judgment, he describes the stunning king who is worthy to judge. So look with me, an incredible king. Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. You know, in movies, you don't ever see the bad guy riding on a white horse, do you? No, you see the valiant hero, the knight who is coming to save the day. He's the one that rides on a white horse, amen? The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes 
war. He is not just any hero. He is a faithful hero. He is a true hero. He is a righteous hero. The reason that Christ is such a good king and such a good judge is because he is faithful and true and righteous. He cannot, in his judgments, be swayed or corrupted or even wrong. He is perfect in all of his judgments because he's perfect in all of his character. He is unlike Vladimir Putin, who is trying to establish himself as the judge over Ukraine for his own selfish motives. He is not faithful, true, or righteous. But Christ stands as a perfect judge, not coming to exact and accomplish a personal agenda, but coming to bring about perfect justice. Verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Christ is able to see perfectly. He's got 20-20 x-ray supervision. Not to see through walls and things like that, although he could do that because he is the Lord, but to see all of reality with perfect clarity. He sees all of the wrongdoing and all of the crimes around the world with precision and accuracy. He can't be wrong or confused. He's perfect. He is perfect. I like to listen to true crime podcasts sometimes. I'm not like a fanatic like some people are. Uh, and a lot of the best true crime podcasts are just, you just kind of end the podcast and you're like, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what's right, what's wrong. Maybe the person who did it knows. And that's never the case with Jesus. He sees every situation with perfect clarity and therefore he's able to judge with perfect severity. He always sees all things. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And, verse 12 continues, on his head are many diadems. A diadem is a kind of crown, and Christ has many of them because one is not enough. He is not a a little king over a little empire somewhere off in the ocean. He is the king of all nations, and so he is crowned with many crowns. And, verse 12 continues, he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And when I came to that passage, that verse this week, I had no idea what it meant. And so I read a couple books, and now I can tell you I have a little bit of maybe an idea of what it means. Some people believe that this name that no one knows but Christ himself maybe refers to the divine name. As you read your Old Testament, sometimes you'll come across the word Lord in all capital letters. And, and, and that's actually just a stand-in for the divine name, for the holy name of God that was so holy and so perfect and so wonderful that the Israelites didn't even say it because that's how holy and wonderful it is. And so maybe that's the name that no one knows but himself. Maybe it's just referring to his greatness, that the wonders of Jesus are so vast and inexhaustible that you could never get to the bottom of them. You could never understand his name fully. He's always wonderful. There's always new joys and glories to be discovered in Jesus. Or maybe in ancient magic practices, some people believe that if you knew the name of a spirit, You had special power over that spirit, and not so with Jesus. No one knows his name like that. No one has power over him. He is supreme in authority. And so which of those three realities is the case here? What's in view here in verse 12? I don't know. But what I do know is that each of those three theories point to the same reality, that Jesus Christ has supreme power because he is the living God. He alone is 
God, and he is all-powerful. Verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. That's the blood of his enemies. He is a good judge who will crush all evil. And verse 13 continues, the name by which he is called is the word of God. Christ is the word of God because he is the full revelation of God's character and he is the final declaration of God's judgment. Christ will bring about perfect justice. He is the word of God. Verse 14, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Have you ever heard God called the Lord of hosts? You know what that means? Some people think that, that that refers to like God's very welcoming and he's a very good host. And, and that's true. God is very welcoming and kind. He welcomes all who the Father draws. But that's not what the Lord of hosts means. The Lord of hosts means that he's the supreme commander of the heavenly hosts. He's the Lord of armies. He is not just some weak little teacher who's like, hey, maybe guys, if you would like to like follow me, that'd be cool. No, he has armies. He is a general. Some of the military men and women in here can resonate with that. He has a strong army behind him, and he always accomplishes his agenda. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. So, so Christ's word is a sword, described as like a sword coming from his mouth. Because his word has all of the power and authority needed to judge and accomplish his purposes. He has no scheming or dreaming or like maybe if I could manipulate the situation this way, I could get my way. No, 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 no. His word accomplishes his will perfectly. And so it's like a sharp sword. It shoots from his mouth and it strikes down his enemies instantly because he is powerful. He spoke all of creation into existence. He will speak all of evil out of existence on the last day. His word is like a sharp sword. Verse 15 continues. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. There's this this image throughout Revelation of the winepress of God's wrath, which is an image that comes from the Old Testament, from the prophet Isaiah most notably. And Revelation always describes it to show the severity and the inescapability of God's judgment, meaning that when God Almighty has set himself against you, you have about as much hope as a grape in a wine press. You're not going to make it out. God's judgment is severe and exact and inescapable. But, but Revelation also takes an interesting point to show that it's Christ himself who treads the wine press of God's wrath. Because Christ alone is worthy to judge. Christ alone has the authority, the authority that only God has, to tread that winepress. Again, it's a picture that he is the living God. And verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. This is Jesus' name tag. King of kings and Lord of lords. We say that phrase so often that I think we miss the majesty that's in there. He is the ruler of all rulers. He is the supreme power over all powers. He makes the strongest world empire look like a little village made out of Lego. He is the king of all kings and all rulers, including Putin. And so we know 
that justice will be done. We have confidence there because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is an incredible king, amen? Amen. Why? Why is he the king forever? Why is he the king forever? Revelation answers that question for us way back at the beginning of the book in Revelation chapter 5. You might remember it's been a few months since we unpacked Revelation chapter 5 on our journey through this awesome book. But in Revelation chapter 5, there's a scene described right before the seals of God's judgment are broken and the scrolls of God's judgment are opened. There's a scene described where all of heaven is looking at these seven scrolls with seven seals and they're saying nobody but God can open these scrolls. Nobody has the authority to do it. Nobody can do it. And so they all start looking for the king because they know that the king has the authority needed to open those scrolls. And so everybody starts looking around and they say, where's the king? Where's the lion? Where's the king of the jungle? The mighty strong lion. He's going to be strong enough to open the seals. And then all of a sudden, out of the, the chaos, the lion stands and he doesn't look like a strong, mighty lion. He looks like a slaughtered lamb. And all of heaven explodes with this song of praise in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. You're worthy to do this justice. You're worried to bring about God's perfect plan to end all evil. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals for, why? For you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Why is Jesus Christ the king and the judge forever? Because according to the song in Revelation chapter 5, because he was slain. He was slain. That's not what we look for in an ideal ruler today. We look for somebody who's electable and charismatic and and able to win the day. And in the kingdom of heaven, in the most supremely beautiful upside-down way, the biggest loser is crowned as the victor supreme because Christ gave his life away. He is crowned with many crowns as the king of heaven and all nations forever. Amen? And why was he slain? He was slain because he sees all of our crimes with perfect clarity, with his flame of fire, and we're all worthy to fall under his judgment forever. We have no hope to stand before this holy God, but God loves us so much that he made a way for us to be saved. His son was slain, and by his blood, he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so this beautiful, wonderful, glorious king gave his life for us. And so maybe you're here today and you are not a Christian. Well, Jesus is king forever. It's unavoidable. So come to him and be saved. Leave behind the sin that promises life because it will never deliver on its promises. And come to know the living God who reigns supreme. And if you are a Christian, know that you will live forever. It's unavoidable. Why? Because Jesus is king forever. 
So keep trusting in Christ. Don't believe the subtle lie that you can graduate from God's grace, that God started salvation and now I'm going to finish it. I'll take care of the rest. I got it from here, Jesus. We're all good. No, no, no. Don't believe the lie. Don't believe the lie that God loves you more on the days that you're crushing it spiritually. You know, you wake up in the morning and you read your Bible and you pray and you have a great time of prayer and then you go out and you go to work and you're like super happy and encouraging and you share your faith with somebody and you lead like six people to Christ in one day. You've planted like five churches by lunchtime. Don't believe the lie that God loves you more on those days than your worst days. The days when you have nothing to offer. Because friends, do you really think that this holy incredible king who has eyes like a flame of fire and a sword coming out of his mouth, who's crowned with many crowns. He's the king of everything from, from Putin to a mouse. Do you really think that he has, he's impressed by our little tiny good works? No, of course not. He's an incredible king. He's not impressed by us. But friends, the good news is that while you cannot impress this king, the good news is that you don't have to. Because he was slain. And by his blood, he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So keep trusting in Christ, this incredible king. That's the first vision. The rest of them will not be that long, I promise you. Stick with me. An incredible king. The second vision, an imminent defeat. In verses 17 and 18, we see a picture that God's enemies will be defeated. It's a promise. You can bank on it. Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come and gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. This is a divine invitation to the vultures. Say, you guys looking for something to eat? There's about to be a lot of carcasses around here because God's judgment is imminent. You cannot outrun the word of God. And notice in verse 18 who it is that's being judged in this promised imminent defeat. It's mighty men, it's kings, it's captains, it's horses and their riders, it's free men, slave men, small men, great men. Everyone is being destroyed in this imminent judgment. There is no strength that you could use to escape God's judgment. Again, none of us could ever be good enough. And we don't have to because he was slain and by his blood he ransomed people for God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Jesus is king forever, and his judgment is looming. It is certain, and there is no strength that can escape it. And one day, this imminent defeat will come. Third vision, God's enemies will be defeated, including Satan. Revelation 19.19, And I saw the beast... And the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. So here's a picture of Satan gathering all of the measly army that he can possibly rally together. 
in this desperate attempt to overthrow the incredible king and save himself because he's heard the announcement to the vultures. He knows that the mighty man will be cast down. He knows that he will be destroyed. So he's doing this last-ditch Hail Mary attempt to save himself. But the battle is over before it even began. Look at verse 20. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. There is no raging battle. There is no epic climax. It's just boom. The word comes from his mouth like a sharp sword and his enemies are defeated. And I want you to notice here that Satan is cast into hell. Satan is not the ruler of hell. One of the biggest problems in America, I believe, is that we've determined most of our theology, not from the Bible, but by Looney Tunes. Because when somebody dies in Looney Tunes, one of two things happen, both of which are equally wrong. One time, somebody will die, and then a little ghosty flies up, and he wears a robe and has wings and sits on a cloud and plays a harp all day. And that's, that's one option that happens. That's also completely wrong. We'll cover that next week, so come on back. Uh, but the other thing that happens when somebody dies in Looney Tunes is that the earth opens up, and they fall through a pit into like a cauldron, and there's a red guy with horns and a pitchfork, and he's like stabbing them and making soup or something for all of eternity. And it, I mean, it looks miserable, uh, and, and maybe that part of the picture is right, but what's wrong is that things like Looney Tunes portray the idea that Satan is the ruler of hell, and that all of the sinners will be cast down, and he gets to gleefully torture them forever. And that is not the case. Satan is not the ruler of hell. He is judged forever in hell. He is not the ruler. He has no authority forever. And he's not the only one that's judged. Verse 21. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds who were gorged with their flesh. So Satan's not the only one being judged. Also, everyone who is with Satan is being judged. Now, I doubt if we asked for a show of hands, anybody here on Team Satan, no one's raising their hand. No, I mean, you're in church. You're at least going to pretend you know the right answer, right? No, pretty sure Satan is not the right team. That's wrong. Um, So none of us would say that we're on Team Satan. So what does it mean here in verse 21 and several times throughout this passage that Satan is judged and those who are with him are judged? The rest were slain by the sword. Who is with Satan? Well, what Jesus says in the passage that we read earlier this morning from Matthew chapter 12 Right after Jesus described this war with Satan and how he's casting demons into the pit and how he's binding up the strong man, right after Jesus describes that, he says in Matthew 12, 30, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. So here's the thing. According to Jesus, you are either with Christ or you are against Christ. You're either on team Satan or team Jesus. There is no room for indifference. There is no room for neutrality. There is no room to wait and maybe make up your mind later on. There's no room for that. You're either with him or you are against him. We're in a war, friends. There's no room for neutrality. And we shouldn't be surprised here when evangelism is difficult. 
Because we're not just asking people to, to come to church or to do an event or do some external thing. We're asking people to stop living for one king and start living for a different king. And as you do evangelism, as you make disciples, keep that in mind. Remember that there's no room for neutrality. So when somebody says to you something like, oh, well, you know, that's your truth and that's fine for you. I'm glad that it makes you happy. I'm glad that it makes you feel safe. You can just remember that there's no middle ground. You could even bring this verse up to them. Jesus said, well, whoever's not with me is against me. So are you with him or against him? What does it mean to be with Jesus? What does it mean to be against Jesus? We shouldn't be surprised when evangelism is difficult because we are in a war, but God's enemies will face an inescapable destruction, an incredible king, an imminent defeat, an inescapable destruction, in verse 4, an international mission. Satan is trying to stop the spread of the gospel, but Christ will not let that happen. In Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3, we see a picture of Satan's power being limited so that the gospel can spread throughout the whole world. So read with me those verses. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. Then I saw, again, there's that heading, then I saw, then I saw. These are six distinct visions they're not in chronological order. They don't overlap with one another. They, they actually describe some of the same events from different angles and different sides. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Doesn't sound like a pleasant place. Airbnb rentals there are, are just falling through the floor. Nobody wants to go there. And he sees the dragon that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. So these verses describe a millennium or a period of 1,000 years where Satan is bound, cast into a pit, being tortured, and at the end of this 1,000 years, Satan will emerge and have a little bit more free reign over the earth. Many Christians, faithful Christians, have argued that this refers to a literal 1,000 years, that sometime in the future, Christ will return, he will throw Satan into the pit, he will rule on the earth for a thousand years, Satan will come out, there will be a final battle, it will be epic and awesome, Christ will reign, reign victorious, and then the final day of judgment comes. Now, I don't think that's what's in view here in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, primarily for two reasons. One being that Revelation is not a chronological or a historical book. It's a true book that you can read, but you've got to read it properly. You've got to read it according to what it's intending. So my favorite book is Harry Potter, and I don't read Harry Potter the same way as I read the newspaper. Because those are different books trying to do different things. Revelation's not a history book. It tells us the truth that Satan will be cast down forever. It isn't in the Bible to tell us when that'll happen so that you can get out your charts and do some math and maybe decide like, all right, 2032, that's it. That's when he's coming back. Especially numbers and time in the book of Revelation are highly 
symbolic. And the other reason that I don't think this is describing a period in the future when Christ comes, judges Satan, and then Satan's released later on is because throughout the New Testament, the second coming of Christ and the final judgment are described as as synonymous events. They happen at the same time. Most clear example to that in the Bible is Matthew chapter 25. And so what is being described here? I don't think that this is describing Christ coming and binding Satan at his second coming. Rather, I believe that this describes Christ's first coming. At Christ's first coming, he inaugurated a new era in the history of the world called the church age. That's where we're living now. And at the cross, when Christ died, he delivered a decisive blow in the battle against Satan. So read Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. This is the Apostle Paul's description of the first coming of Christ. At the cross, he, meaning Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's Paul's favorite way to talk about Satan and demonic powers. So at the cross, Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities, satanic powers, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So when Christ died and rose again, he made a decisive blow in the battle against Satan. And now, as a result, as we see pictured in Revelation chapter 20, Satan is bound. He was bound by the blood of Christ. So what does it mean for Satan to be bound? It doesn't mean that he's completely powerless in the church age, or that he can't do anything, or that he's not still prowling around like a lion seeking someone to devour. No, no, no. He is still powerful. I think that Revelation 20 describes a very specific boundary for Satan in verse 3. He was bound, he was thrown into the pit, shut it, sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. So at the cross and in his resurrection, Christ bound up Satan so that the gospel's able to freely spread to the ends of the earth. The gospel can spread to the nations. Satan will not be able to stop it because Christ really did die for sinners and really did rise again. And that leaves us with an urgent, important mission because today, 42% of the world's population lives in a place where there is little or absolutely no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Places, distinct ethno-linguistic cultural groups where there are not and have never been any Christians or churches or missionaries. That's 42% of the world population. There's a little bit more people on this side of the room than this side of the room. That's like saying all of these people on this side of the room have absolutely no hope unless someone goes and tells them. 42% of the world population. That's almost half. We can't be okay with that. Satan is bound for a time so that we can fulfill this urgent international mission. Imagine if I was out for a walk with my family. I'm married and I have two kids. If I was out for a walk with my family and this dog a massive dog jumped over a fence and started charging at us, I would not think. I would tackle the dog. 
And I would do everything that I can to stop the dog from killing my family. I don't care what happens to me. My life is laid down in that moment. And I'm going to tackle that dog. I'm going to yell over my shoulder to my wife. I'll stop the dog. You grab the kids and run. Save them while you can. And in a similar way, when Christ died and rose again, he tackled Satan And he says to you, the church, I'll stop the dog. You run to the nations with the gospel. Save them while you can. Christ has left us with an urgent mission to bring the gospel to to the nations. That's why the mission of our church is to make Jesus known where? In D.C. and around the world. Because we care about the 42% of the world's population that has little to no access to Christ. And also, it's the reason that if you're a member of Pillar DC, one of the things that you've actually promised to do is to give your life away for this. Listen to these words from our church covenant. We engage to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the spread of the gospel through all nations, both with our finances and our time. So that's one of the things that we've agreed to do together. That doesn't mean that every member of Pillar DC has already signed their life away and has to get on a boat tomorrow. It does mean that all of us have a role. We all have to pray for the gospel to spread to all nations. If you don't know how to pray for that, let me tell you, let me give you two names, Logan and Emily. Logan and Emily are missionaries that we support. They're serving in Southeast Asia. They're currently learning the language, and their hope is to go to a language group that has never heard the name of Jesus. The language group that Logan and Emily will one day serve, no one has ever praised Jesus in their language. No one has ever said Christ died for our sins in their language. No one has ever said hallelujah in their language. And so unless somebody like Logan and Emily goes, then those people will never have any chance to hear the hope of Christ. So pray. You don't know how to pray? Pray for Logan and Emily. And give to the ministry of our church. When you give to our church a percentage of that offering, a large percentage, and hopefully by God's grace in years to come, a growing, increasing percentage of that offering is not kept here and stored up here, but sent away to the nations to support people like Logan and Emily and other works around the world. And some of you are going to recognize, I believe more of you, are going to recognize that this work is so important that you, have, you can't just sit on the sidelines and send faithfully, but you have to go to lay down your whole life to spread the word of Christ because Satan is bound. The mission is urgent, and he will be released in the future. And what happens when he's released in the future? The fifth vision, an indisputable victory. Satan and Christ are locked in an eternal, deadly battle. And there will never be any question about who the victor is. Christ will claim certain victory in his battle against Satan. And because of that reality, because Christ will claim certain victory in the final battle, Christians will live forever. Revelation 20, verses 4 through 10, 4 through 6. And I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. 
Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped to the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. That's, again, if you haven't been with us, that's just describing the people who are against Christ, living for the world instead of the kingdom of God. That, so the people that don't have that mark, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So this passage describes an event called the first resurrection when Christians, all who have trusted in Jesus, are raised to life. Every Christian is included in this event. It's a sure and certain reality. And so what is this referring to? I think it's referring to regeneration. When someone turns away from their sin and turns towards Christ and believes in him, that person is given new life. That person is given, is given a new birth. They're born again is how Jesus described it in John chapter 3. Hear how the Apostle Paul describes it in Colossians 2.12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So what Paul's getting at there is that coming to Christ is your own resurrection. Because all of us were dead in our trespasses and sins. We had no hope to please God. We had no hope to earn our way to heaven. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God made a way for us to be saved, to give us new life. And he did it gloriously and triumphantly through Christ Jesus. And so the old you that was controlled by sin and controlled by selfishness and couldn't live for God's kingdom, that old you is dead if you're a Christian. It was nailed to the cross with Christ. And a new you is risen up from the dead. A new you who will never die. You've experienced the first resurrection and you will never die. This is something that only Christians experience. And it's so important. We talk all the time about the cross of Christ. The New Testament places almost as much, if not more, emphasis on the empty tomb of Christ. Because that empty tomb is not just a sure and certain sign that Jesus is alive. It's a sure and certain sign that you are alive. Because the old you died with Jesus and the new you is born again. The new you is risen to life with Jesus. He died for our sins and we're risen up with him. This is something that only Christians experience. And some Christians in verse 4 are martyrs. They give their lives for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. But all Christians are called to lay down their lives for the spread of the gospel, for the spread of this good news. And all Christians, verse 6 describes all Christians, or rather verse 4, describes Christians as sitting on a throne to judge. Christians are kings. In a sense, every Christian has some authority entrusted to them on the day of the final judgment to judge the unbelieving world. That's a mystery, and it's stunning and beautiful and beyond comprehension. Christians are kings, and also Christians are priests. Notice there in verse 6, the second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ. 
and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So Christians are priests in the sense that we represent God to the world. That's one of the reasons evangelism is such a privilege because we're an ambassador. We're showing the world what God is like, telling the world what God is like. So Christ will claim certain victory in his battle against Satan. Therefore, Christians will live forever. And also, because Christ will claim certain victory, Satan and all of his people will face eternal death. Verse 7 and 8. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the sea, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. And their number is like the sand of the sea. Gog and Magog were a foreign empire that came against Israel. You can read the story in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And God says in Ezekiel 38 that he allowed Gog to do that. He allowed Gog to come and wreak havoc over his people. Why? So that he could judge them and so that all the nations may know that he is the holy judge. God judges his enemies so that the whole world will know that Jesus is king forever. Verse 9, And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. So you notice what's happening there? You see what's happening? There's this big army, and they're rallying against the kingdom of God, and they're like, yeah, we're going to take it. We're going to burn it down to the ground. And then fire just falls from heaven, and they're done. It's over. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It looked like Satan would win, but he is decimated in an instant and for eternity. He will not win. There are some Christians who are so terrified about the reality of Satan and demons. Friends, you don't have to worry. Not because he's not real and he's not powerful. He is. But because you know that Christ will claim an indisputable victory. All of God's enemies will be shot down forever. And the sixth vision, an indiscriminate judgment. On the last day, everyone who has ever lived will all gather together. The dead will be raised and everyone will stand before Christ and everyone will be judged. There is no escape. This judgment is indiscriminate. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for him. That's how wonderful King Jesus is. That's how mighty King Jesus is, that the very earth and the sky tremble and flee before his glorious power to judge. Verse 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. See the scene? You've got everyone standing before the throne. You've got two books, a book of works and a book of life. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. I'm sorry, I missed the end of verse 12 there. Then uh, the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
So everyone will be judged by what is written under their ledger in the book of works. But Christians are saved, not because the works written under their name are not bad, but because their name is written in the book of life, because Christ was judged already on their behalf. And notice what happens. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The very idea of death will become a distant memory. It doesn't have any authority on those who are spared in the day of final judgment. Jesus is king forever, and you will live forever if you are in Christ. So if you are not sure today about where you will stand on this day of judgment, you know that your good works aren't going to be good enough. Don't leave today without resolving that because there's no room for indifference with Jesus. I don't care if you think you're the most important person in the world. Come and humble yourself before King Jesus because he alone has power to save you and change you. And if you're a Christian, lay your life down to spread this good news because judgment is coming and the mission is, the mission is urgent. We serve Christ not because we need to earn his love, or because we need, he needs our help to win the battle. No, we serve Christ because the battle is already won and we are already his. Our only hope that the war will end, that justice will reign, the hope that one day we will dance in the fountains, overjoyed that we are with him forever, is that Jesus Christ is king. And we will spend forever enjoying our good and gracious king who gave his life to bring us home. We serve Christ, not because we need to earn his love or because he needs our help to win the battle. We serve Christ because the battle is already won and we are already his.